I love the words of that last hymn we sang. I would encourage you later to go back and just read through them and make that your heart's prayer this Lord's Day. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 5 and read through verse 9 this morning. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us to pray with the faith that we observe in your scriptures this morning. The faith of a man who is utterly destroyed at the magnitude of the sin that was before him. Let our prayers be prayers of faith in you. Prayers of faith toward you. Prayers of faith that originate from you. God, we worship you because we need you. We don't come giving you something that you need. We come to you seeking the only supply of what we cannot live without. And so, Lord, open our hearts to your word this morning. Let that word which cuts, cut deeply and cut precisely. Let our hearts be laid open to the healing message of your word. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Today we begin looking at one of the most beautiful sections of Ezra. And I don't think I would err in saying that despite the extensive teaching we found in this book along the way, this is where everything in this chronicle has been heading. The stage is set. The land of Judah centering on, on Jerusalem. The players are set. They are the returning exiles from the two waves of returns. And the main character is set. 
Ezra, the faithful scribe who has been commissioned to preach the word of God to those who have returned to Jerusalem. We saw at the beginning of this book the decree of Cyrus allowing exiles in Babylon to return home to Judah. We saw them return with the intention to make reconstructing the temple their top priority and we watched as they lagged. As the opposition and their private concerns kept the temple in an unfinished state for 23 years. And then almost 60 years after that, Ezra led a second group of exiles to Judah. And last week, we saw the moment when Ezra understood the enormity of the sin of those first returnees. You'll recall that there were some indications of some spiritual problem among the returned exiles. One of those indications was the tepid response to their arrival. You recall that Ezra expected a great ceremony when they came to Jerusalem from Babylon. He expected, if you look in Ezra 8.29, that people would be there looking to see what God had provided. He told the priests when he divided the treasure for the journey, he says, guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem. He expected a ceremony that included all the heads of all the tribes of Israel to see the great work of God, to be a testimony to what God had done. But when he arrived, it took four days to arrange to even weigh in the treasures that they had brought. And even then, the high priest did not even attend. Two lesser priests and two Levites were all who were there to witness God's bounty. And when he had barely begun teaching after this, a mere four months after his arrival, the leaders of the people came to him and told him what must have been an open secret. The people of God were mixing themselves with the idolaters of the land. Families were arranging marriages for their sons to those who worshipped heathen gods. And we looked last week at the shock that this news brought to this man of God. And as I read it even last week, it brought to mind another shocking incident earlier in Israel's history when the king had stolen his faithful soldier's wife and then had him killed on the battlefield to cover up his sin. And when he had thought he had covered everything up sufficiently, the virtually unknown prophet Nathan came to him and told him the story of the theft of the little ewe lamb by the rich man. You remember that story. And when that King David had declared the penalty on the head of that man, we all, I hope, recall Nathan's reply, You are the man. When the officials came to Ezra in the passage we looked at last week and confessed their sins to him, they were saying effectively, We are the men. 
They had been convicted by the law of God and they came to Ezra to find out what to do about it. Ezra then tells us that he sat destroyed until the time for the evening sacrifice. And we see this week what he did when he rose up at that time of day. This week I hope to look specifically at the theme of prayer that follows and then to look at verse 6 in detail. For the sake of time, we'll have to leave it, leave the remaining verses of this passage for the coming weeks, if the Lord wills it. And so looking at verse 5, he says, At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. When Ezra rose from his sitting, when Ezra rose from that destruction of his soul, he didn't stand to his feet, he went directly to his knees. And he prayed. And not just any prayer, but a beautiful address to God and a solid example for the people around him to follow in their own hearts. The type of prayer we would classify these days as intercessory prayer and confessory prayer. Or if you like, I could say it a different way, a prayer that is at the same time a prayer of intercession and a prayer of confession. For today, let's consider the work of intercession that Ezra is performing in this prayer. When we talk of intercession or interceding, the word simply means to go between, to get in between two parties. In its general usage, it means to plead on behalf of another to plead a case, or to take someone's concern to another. And often this pleading is done by someone not directly affected by the incident, such as an attorney interceding on behalf of their client in a court of law. They make a request, they make a petition, they ask a favor on behalf of another person. And so when we speak about intercessory prayer, We're talking specifically about praying to God on someone else's behalf. We see Ezra begin his prayer of intercession in verse 6, where he says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Notice, if you will, the pronouns in this verse. They're very important there. I am ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you. My God. All these begin in the singular. He's talking about himself at the beginning of this great prayer. But then for the rest of the prayer, his pronouns are plural. Our iniquities. Our heads, our guilt. And on through the end of the prayer where he declares in verse 16, we are before you in our guilt. This is not by accident. He is interceding on behalf of God's people as one of them. 
even though his wife is not from among the idolaters, nor are any of the wives of his sons, assuming he has any. He takes on the guilt of that sin in his prayer that he lifts to God. He takes on the burden of their sin as if it were his own. We see also later on in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul commands the church through Jesus Christ to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2. He is speaking specifically there about praying for each other, interceding for our Christian brothers and sisters in our struggle with temptation. If, you're, if, you don't, if you don't think that's the case, look at the verse right before it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He makes it quite clear. He says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. And then he goes on, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we intercede, we become interested. We gain a part in that solution. Ezra in this very spirit did not come out dictating or condemning. He didn't stand up and preach a scathing sermon. He came out praying. He came out interceding for those who had been caught in this great trespass. And he's not merely tossing a prayer at the sky. He is urgently seeking the God of the universe on behalf of those who had come to confess. And even more, on behalf of those who were as yet unrepentant of their sins. He prayed for them. As well, he identified with God's people, being counted among them, even though some had committed this grievous sin. And from inside that camp, he intercedes for them. We see the blushing they should be doing on his face, we see the humbling that they should be doing in his position. We see the fasting and the prayer that they are being called to do by example of this man of God who has numbered himself among them. In concluding his epistle, James demonstrates for us the work of intercession in the church. He says in chapter 5, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Those are verses 14 through 16 in that chapter. Even in praying for those who are sick, There is a redemptive, intercessory aspect to it. When faced with sickness, even to death, the greatest need of a Christian is not healing. Our greatest need is faithfulness to Jesus Christ to the end.
It is thus always appropriate to pray for each other's spiritual needs, even if we are unsure of God's will concerning their health or their physical prognosis. There's a popular teaching out there that a lack of healing means a lack of what those false teachers call true faith. They'll often use this very passage in James to support that faulty conclusion, but nothing in this passage guarantees healing. What it guarantees is our identification with one another in Christ and our trust in God who heals both the body and the soul. Because if the Lord tarries, we shall all die of some cause and at some time. But if we are found found in Him, we will live even though these mortal bodies have died. And we will be raised bodily to live with Him forever on the day He raises all His people. Now, when we're interceding for someone, there's something else we must have in order to make an effective intercession. I summarize that in the word standing. In order to make a plea, I'm not talking about standing up, but in order to make a plea on someone's behalf, you must have standing. Think of it as permission or license to make such a request. For example, to act as a legal counsel and plead a case before the court, as I understand it, I'm not an attorney or the son of an attorney. As I understand it, the person making the plea must have been admitted to the bar. He must be a practicing, licensed attorney who is specifically permitted to address the court on someone else's behalf. Another example might be if you wanted me to obtain tickets for you to some grand event, perhaps a sold-out concert or football game. And so you ask me to intercede on your behalf to the artist or to the promoter or to the person who is selling those tickets. But in almost every case, I will make a successful plea only if I know either of those people. If they don't know me from you, my intercession does no good. I have no standing. I am useless as an intercessor because I have no standing. I take you this morning to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. As we see the one who has standing before God. Because in discussing the high priestly role of our Lord, the Holy Spirit tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His piety. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is the perpetual intercessor for us all if we are in Christ. And we see here that even when He was in the flesh before the crucifixion, 
after the crucifixion and before the ascension. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Unfortunately, many of us read that and we think immediately of the Garden of Gethsemane where He prayed and He wept and He sweated drops of blood. But if you think that is it, you miss the point entirely. It, it, it may be confusing because of the way we translate the phrase, the one who is able to save him from death. Because a better understanding would be offered, would be that he offered these petitions to the one who was able to save him out of death or through death. And the fact of his resurrection proved his faithfulness to God and the truthfulness of His claims. It proved His standing before God. These prayers and these supplications that were not offered for Himself, these prayers and these supplications were offered for His people. When it says prayers, that word in the original language indicates intercession for the overwhelming needs of His people. It's like if you looked at somebody who was absolutely destitute and you knew that anything that could be given would help raise them out of that state. It is the piteous cry to the one who can Bring them up. And when we see the word supplication, that word paints a picture of an olive branch, meaning that He was interceding for us to make peace with God. He is our peace. And we see how He made these prayers and He made these supplications. It says that He made them while He was in the flesh, while He was among us, while He was one of us. Fully man, fully God, He came to be among us. And then we see that He made them urgently with loud crying and tears on behalf of His people. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Hebrews continues in chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Therefore, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is interceding on behalf of those who draw near to God through Him. There's nothing general, there's nothing universal about His petitions to God. He prays for His people. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, 
because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I realized that many of us as we were growing up were taught that God hears all prayers, but that's simply not the case. The prayers that God hears come from His people alone. Some might try to weaken that by saying that God hears everyone, but only heeds His people. But I tell you, that's a distinction without a difference. The result is exactly the same. Now some unbeliever may say that they have prayed, that they might have even offer evidence that they have received what they have prayed for. Or they might simply offer the evidence that they felt better through the process. They sent good thoughts. Maybe they did. But that doesn't mean God answered them. There's a chilling statement regarding this kind of answered prayer in Psalm 106, verses 13 through 15. It says, For they soon forgot His works. Talking about those who died in the desert, who had forsaken God, who had gone away from God, even after He had spoken to them from Sinai. They soon forgot His works. They forgot the Red Sea. They didn't wait for His counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. And listen to this. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Now, I ain't going to say this many times, but I really like the way the King James translates that because it's entirely accurate to what is said. This is how King James says that last verse. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. He gave them what they asked for. When they clamored for meat, He gave them quail. When they clamored for food, He gave them manna. When they clamored in faithlessness, thinking that God was going to allow them to thirst to death, He gave them water and made it pure, but sent leanness into their soul. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, All your prayers amount to nothing more than an emotional exercise. A psychology experiment. You have no standing before God outside of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 2 tell us that the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem is not on God's side. 
The problem is your sin. But the good news is that anyone can repent of the sinful life that leaves you in charge. If you repent of that sinful life that leaves you in charge and seek Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master, you will be included in those for whom the Holy Spirit and our Lord intercede. He calls you to Himself. If you follow Him, you may draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yeah, that was Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. If you'd like to go back and look at that later. Finally, in intercession, I must offer this warning. Intercession does not seek to diminish the one who is petitioned. We see the humble words of Ezra in verse 6 and throughout the prayer. He says, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. And in his petition to God, God's own glory is far more important than anything else. And it is as it should be. I've seen people praying publicly. I've seen people praying on media that say, God, I claim... Or God, I declare that you shall do this. Don't claim. Don't declare. Pray. We don't approach the God of the universe telling Him how to run His universe. We approach the God of the universe as one who is in need of His mercy. One who is in need of His grace. And we forget that to our peril. Often, when we pray for each other, or when we pray for those who don't follow our Lord, we ask for things that may not be in God's will to provide. An example would be, what eternal good is it to pray for comfort, for ease, for joy, for someone who is rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ? Their greatest need and the concern that we should be lifting to God is the state of their soul, not of their job, bank account, or family life. God may be using those very difficulties to bring that person into repentance and to bring them ultimately to Jesus Christ. Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It would actually be more loving to pray that God would make their life a living hell in order to save them from an eternal hell. This is where I find great comfort in the reform doctrine of election. That is, the doctrine that says that God is entirely responsible for salvation. He calls us and He gives us the faith to respond. He makes us alive and He brings us into His kingdom. 
I find great comfort in it because it means I can make intercession for those who don't know Jesus Christ. I can pray that God will bring them into His kingdom. It means that I can pray to the Father that He will call someone out of darkness and into His light. If I didn't hold to that doctrine of election, I would have to believe, as some do, that there is some independent choice a person must make that is critical to salvation. That they would have to be convinced to follow God instead of being called to follow Him. And so, if I did not understand this biblical doctrine of election, when I prayed for the lost, the best I could do would be to ask God to do everything He can to convince them of the truth. How weak and impotent is that prayer. And if they don't convert, then what do we say? Thanks anyway, God. I know you tried. Do not diminish the God you pray to by believing for any second that He is not capable of doing what you ask. Because He is sovereign. He is the one who makes that decision. It was that very supplication, that very olive branch that Jesus made loud crying and tears to accomplish. It is for the souls of those that He shed His blood to redeem. And if you are in Him, that's you. God is glorified in salvation precisely because it is His work and not the work or the will of man, so that no one can boast. And as you read the remainder of this prayer of Ezra, I would encourage you to do that every single day this week. Set aside the three or four minutes it takes to read those 11 verses. Make note of all the places that He glorifies God. All the places we see the acknowledgement of God's mercy, of God's grace, of God's long-suffering, of God's faithfulness, of God's holiness, of God's judgment, and of God's majesty. Because when we go to the Lord in prayer, we are not seeking merely our needs, we are seeking His glory. And when we intercede for others, we must not forget that His glory is the most important thing. Let's pray. Our Father, You have done everything to accomplish the salvation of those whom you called. Before we could believe, we had to be awakened. Before we could be awakened, we had to be made alive. And God, you have done that. Before we could approach you in prayer, we needed standing.
And so, God, you sent us your only begotten Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who will always and forever stand before you, raising our petitions to you, interceding for your people. God, that should never puff us up. That should never make us think that we are in any way deserving. God, let it drive us to our knees. Let it humble us above all things. And let it break our hearts to pray for those who need to hear the gospel. We ask these things in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen.